Last week we were discussing this 2 Corinthians 5.16, knowing no man after the flesh. And before we actually got very far into the verse, we had a discussion about an application, an application of the passage uh, having to do with when people come to Christ and they're, they're part of the church, they really are to be known and accepted as what they are, new creatures in Christ, and not divided up according to what they were after the flesh. That was an application we were making. And I was suggesting that um, various groups that might be in the church where you divide people up according to what their sin used to be, okay, it really doesn't make any sense at all. It really doesn't. That's not how we see people because we're new creatures in Christ and we anybody who believes the gospel has the same status as anybody else who believes the gospel. And we should receive anyone who is a believer into fellowship not in, in at all in regard to what they were according to the flesh. That's, that's what we were talking about last week, 2 Corinthians 5.16. So let me read the passage again, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll begin our Sunday school. It says, therefore, from now on. Now, it says, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. And we mentioned last week that uh, it, it means viewing from, wor- from a worldly perspective. And the from now on is a reference back to the fact that we died. Okay? Verse 14, one died for all, all died. He died for all. Verse 15, that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died. So, because we died... The old man is crucified and dead and buried, according to Romans 6. Therefore, we arise in newness of life. And so we no longer um, look at anybody from a worldly perspective. And that would be true whether the worldly perspective was a bad one or a good one. Okay? If somebody was a nobility... According to the flesh, that's not how we see them as Christians. If somebody was a nobody, um, according to the flesh, that's not how we see them either. Because everyone has new status. Let's pray as we get started on this discussion. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for another day to come together with our brothers and sisters and open the scriptures together and pray together. And remember your death until you come as we have uh, your supper, the Lord's Supper today. And we also pray for the dear saints around the world who listen via the Internet. We pray that you would be with them, that you would meet their needs, and that you'd help them find fellowship, and that they'd know that they're loved and appreciated as well. And we thank you that they're able to join us. So, Lord, we, we thank you for these things, and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, um, this knowing 
no one, uh, kata sarks is the Greek, according to the flesh. What does he mean when he says, have known Christ according to the flesh? Seems kind of an odd statement. But I think that the answer is, for example, in Paul's case, he originally rejected Christ. He saw him only from a worldly perspective. He didn't see him as the true Savior. He didn't see him as the Son of God. Um, But he saw him as someone who was cursed because he'd been crucified. And so when Paul heard the gospel from the mouth of Stephen in Acts 7, Paul rejected it and he held the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen And then being incensed against Christ in the gospel, Paul went on a mission to attack Christians. And so that's what, for Paul, knowing Christ according to the flesh was, not recognizing his true status. So um, let me quote um, Dr. Garland here. He says this, finally Paul says he knows no one kata sarka, according to the flesh. To be consistent, this interpretation would require him to mean that he never met anyone in the flesh, which makes nonsense. This statement that he no longer knows Christ kata sarka, according to the flesh, therefore has nothing to do with any presumed disinterest in the earthly Jesus. Um, Paul refers instead to the measuring scale by which he knows or judges others, namely unspiritual, worldly standards. Paul does not reject knowledge of Christ after the flesh, just as according to the flesh view of Christ, just in an according to the flesh view of Christ. To judge others according to worldly standards or from a sinful point of view only furthers the division and discord rather than fostering reconciliation. Paul does not specify what these standards are, but from the context they must be related to outward appearances, 2 Corinthians 5.12. The primary reason for raising this issue is the Corinthians' misjudgment of his ministry, which they have assessed according to worldly paradigms with which they are more familiar. Paul confesses that he uh, viewed reality in persons from a fleshly perspective, which used only human yardsticks to measure, measure others. Paul's superficial criteria led him to esteem those who appeared to be wise, influential, of noble verse birth and strong, and to disdain those who were none of these things. Before he was captured by Christ, such worldly norms warped his judgment. Remember, Paul was this proud Pharisee who considered himself blameless, according to Philippians. And so Paul was used to judging things according to the flesh. But now that he's a new creature in Christ, he views others differently. Now, the Corinthians were very much guilty of this sort of thing. And if you read both uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you get the idea that they were people who were very much judging according to the flesh. Remember, in 1 Corinthians, they were picking out their favorite preachers and creating sort of a factitious or sectarian Christianity based on, I'm a Apollos, or so on, because they were judging according to the flesh. Now, they had made such a judgment of Paul and determined that he was deficient, that Paul was neither spiritual enough for them, he wasn't uh, articulate enough for them, 
He wasn't any of the things that they were looking for. So Paul here is not only defending himself, but, but uh, portraying before them a whole new paradigm or model of how you would view, view reality. So if we are new creatures, as we'll see in the next verse, then we should no longer judge anyone according to fleshly or human standards. But we should uh, see that each one God has received is important to him. I'll talk about that a little bit in my sermon. By the way, Ryan is sick, so I had to... Uh, uh, he, he finally kept thinking he'd get better. He was sick all week, and so finally he emailed me on Friday, and he said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it Sunday or not, so maybe you better get ready. So we switched Sunday. So I had to do something quick. I didn't have time to do the normal amount of research that I do for a sermon. So I found a sermon that I had preached about three years ago from Romans 14 about how we um, should judge one another or not judge one another based on people having different uh, uh ideas about what's permissible and what's not. And Dick and I did a radio show. So I listened to our radio show to get myself up to speed. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good thing, Dick. <laughs> so I, I feel like I'm ready to preach that. But that's one of the issues that we'll be talking about. There is, it's very important that if God receives someone, okay, when, when God saves somebody, he is adding them to the body of Christ. We don't join a church to make ourselves a Christian. God adds us to the church when he makes us Christian. All right? And so that's what it means to be added to the church, according to Acts. And an important principle is that it's not our job to tell God who he adds to his church. Okay? And if he adds somebody to his church, then we are obligated to receive them into fellowship and not judge them according to the flesh, or not to be a respecter of persons. The thing that makes people beautiful spiritually is the beauty of holiness. And what a wonderful thing that God just chooses to save a diverse bunch of people. And I was just listening to two great sermons by MacArthur uh, that I got from the mail. He has this thing where you can send in and he'll give you a free book or a free sermon or whatever. And I got two of them, and one of them was on um, election. And he was saying, he was, he was referencing 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says, God purposely chooses people that aren't that great. <laughs> okay? <laughs> he says, he actually asked the people to consider their calling. Uh, and so MacArthur, it's a great, great sermon, by the way. I think he'd probably send it to you, too, if you wrote him a letter. But he says, look around. Just, he said, look around the church. How, much, how many nobility do you see? Where, where's the kings and queens and aristocrats? And, and he says, you don't, you don't see too many. You just see ordinary people. Well, there, God has his reasons of who he has to the church. And so... Uh, the Corinthians were guilty of not taking that into consideration. So that's why Paul wrote that to the Corinthians. You are so carnal-minded, you're, you're looking for nobility. But you can't tell God who he adds to his church. And, and when he does add someone, 
Sometimes they're eccentric. <laughs> it does say in the King James that we're a peculiar people. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. That's the Lord's doing. So we don't recognize people that way, and we receive them in the fellowship, and we thank God for what he's done. Actually, I have a passage here. Robert, could you look up 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27? And maybe what I was just referencing there that I heard MacArthur preaching about. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. Mm-hmm. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. There it is. That's what I was just referencing. And, and it's interesting, early in church history, by the way, if you read some of the apologists like Justin Martyr, a couple of my favorite documents from early church history are Justin Martyr's Apologies and Tertullian's Apology. It was another great one. And one of the things you can see from their apologies, which is a defense of the faith, what kind of accusations were being leveled against Christians in the early centuries of the church. And one of the accusations they made was that obviously Christianity was not a very respectable religion because it was populated by slaves and women. Okay? And, uh, in other words, the, the high-minded men that knew better, they would never be Christian. And, and so the fact that, that, Christian, that the Lord was adding people to the church that the, the Romans didn't think were all that great um, became their criticism. And because it's, it's true, God does save people that don't have great status in the eyes of the world. That's what Robert just read in that passage. And so God does that, and then the world looks at it and says, well, look at that motley bunch that you call a church. Nobody, uh, nobody dignified would ever want to join them. So it is. But what's, uh, what's wise in the world's eyes is not necessarily what's wise in God's eyes. Well, let's move then to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Oh, yes, Robert. One of the things I just wanted to mention, I think in verse 16 in chapter 5, where it talks about we've known Christ according to the flesh, is I think it highlights the doctrine of Christ and that this was not, he was not just a spirit, he wasn't just um, a being, he, he was actually God in human flesh. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think of like 1 John 1, where it talks about, you know, that which was. From the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have, have handled, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Amen. You know, that, that this was God in, in human flesh. Yes, I, actually I preached on that last Sunday about the incarnation from uh, John 1. And John very much emphasizes the doctrine of Christ because John, as I understand, was writing later in church history than the other biblical writers, and there had been more time for heresies to develop in the church. And so John was very much concerned with the correct doctrine of Christ and actually made that the test of the spirits, that any spirit that doesn't confess Christ come in the flesh is not from God. And so the doctrine of the incarnation is absolutely essential. Okay, 
Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, we won't be able to discuss this till next week if, because I want to give you time to download it. But on the reference link, it's up there, right? Yep. I, I had a little fun. I, I made a little lesson in logic, okay? Sentential logic. Because Paul is using um, an if-then logical format. If this, then that. Okay? And it's just a, a, a simple form of logic, but it's amazing how people find fallacies and, and, and get it wrong. So on, on the uh, TwinCityFellowship.com, under sermons, if you look along the left, you'll see reference links. Click on that, and there's a document that breaks this down according to logic, all right? Download it, it's PDF, print it, bring it next Sunday, and we'll have a little logic lesson. No extra charge. <laughs> Same price as always. And, and um, it's, logic is fascinating to me. It's just, it's, uh, logic is just explains the relationship between things. And if you can't get logic correct, you really can't understand human languages, and you can't understand the Scripture. All right, logic wasn't invented by the Enlightenment, like the emergent church likes to say. Logic is just basic rationality. You have logic in the garden. All right, you have the law of non-contradiction. Not eating from the tree is not the same as eating from the tree. A is not non-A. Okay, so without logic, you can't have categories. Without categories, you can't have human language, and and you can't know anything. And so attacks against logic, which you're seeing uh, launched here in this whole postmodern milieu, is really an attack against the authority of Scripture, because Scripture depends on these categories for us to understand. So next week, we'll have a little, uh, we'll take this verse, it's if-then, and we'll show two valid ways that if-then logic can be used, and then two fallacies. And then another way of, of making a statement so that it's locked tight uh, and both things are true. So that's on the Internet. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so there's your if. There's your if. If it's the case, if, if this antecedent thing is true, if anyone is in Christ, okay, this would be the same category of people that Paul's been talking about. They, those, he, he died for all, therefore all died. So the ones who died to sin. The ones who are new or, or, or uh, that we no longer know according to the flesh. Anyone who's in Christ, no matter who they may be, no matter who they used to be, then, because this is the case, then it follows that such a person is a new creature. All right. Now, the, the, the point here is that this is going to be universally the case. That's the logic. If the antecedent's true, then the subsequent condition is true as well. So according to this, being a new creature is not something that we attain to eventually after becoming Christians. But being a new creature is, a, is the truth for every single person, and it becomes true immediately upon their conversion. And then what else is true? Further uh, 
uh, uh, description of this new creature is that the old things passed away. And this is, in the, in the Greek, an aorist, active, indicative, and therefore, aorist means it happens at a point in time. And that point in time, when the old things passed away, was at the person's conversion. The old things passed away. And the new has come. It's, it's kind of interesting, this, this whole idea of the new, and we're going to look at some cross-references and uh, this, I believe, is a, uh, an allusion to some passages in the Old Testament about the new that Isaiah, for example, says the new will come. Behold, the Lord says, I'm going to do a new thing. And I believe that it's a reference to the new covenant. So if you're in Christ, and he, then you're a new creature. The word creature in the Greek can also be translated creation. Do some of your versions have creation? The New King James has creation. I think it's probably a better translation in this case than the New American Standard, although either can be true. A new creation. So when God regenerates some, someone, he is doing a new creation. And this, this newness is... Uh, all of the things that have to do with justification, regeneration, um, positional sanctification, all of the things having to do with salvation are involved here. All of those things make us new. Some people, I've gotten emails from people asking a very sincere and legitimate question. I've gotten emails from people who say, I can't identify the point in my life when I was converted. Is that a problem? Is that evidence that I'm not saved? And I, my answer is no. That's not what we're saying. This is particularly too, true for people that are raised in a Christian home. Many times people raised in a Christian home who have always heard in the gospel are converted at a young age, but they don't identify the moment. But the signs of regeneration are still there. In other words, if you, you don't remember the moment of your conversion, but you're 25 years old or 20 years old or 30 years old, and you love God, and you can't wait to hear the truth of the gospel, and you're, uh, you, you're sitting under the means of grace and believing, well, then you were converted or you wouldn't be in this condition. And it's not necessary to identify the point when that happens. It's just necessary that the signs of regeneration are true. And one of the reasons we preach the gospel every single Sunday, and I try to do so forthrightly, uh, declaring the terms, is that the truly regenerate love to hear it. Okay, The people who aren't converted will either be converted or they'll get offended and they want to go somewhere else. Okay? And so anybody willing to sit under the gospel and sit under the means of grace and is willing to tolerate being abused by being told they're going to hell if they don't repent, <laughs> I say that uh, somewhat facetiously because I'm thinking of uh, 
a quote from Benjamin Franklin about Whitfield. Whitfield used to preach the law, just pounded people with the law. The law, the law, the law, the law, you're wretched sinners and you're bound for hell. And Ben Franklin, who really wasn't a Christian, used to go, he, he, he testified that he was strangely drawn to listen to Whitfield. And, and he says, and I, don't, I can't understand all these crowds that come to listen to him. They, 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 the, the huge crowds listen to him, even though he abuses them so badly, telling them that they're half devils. <laughs> and so he's browbeating the crowd and telling them how wicked they are and how sinful they are, and they keep coming back. <laughs> so Ben Franklin couldn't figure that out. <laughs> Interesting little slice of, of American history. But Whitfield was right. Preach the truth, and if they're willing to sit under it, who knows? And even interestingly, I quoted Wesley in one of my articles. So much good teaching was happening at that point of history that even someone that didn't quite have it right, like Wesley, really wasn't that far off. Wesley preached the gospel. And, for example, when I wrote an article on means of grace, I quoted Wesley. And normally uh, an Arminian like Wesley wouldn't, necessarily believe in means of grace. You usually hear means of grace either from Lutherans or Reformed teachers. But Wesley taught means of grace, and he taught it like any good Reformed uh, Woodfield would. In fact, Wesley says, if you're, if you're burdened about your own soul, if you're not sure that you're converted, and, and, you're, and, you're, and you're worried about damnation, he says, go sit under the means of grace... In other words, the preaching of the Word of God. Because who knows when the saving grace might come to you? That was Wesley. And then if you read the Wesley hymn about being in the dungeon, okay, remember the soul in the dungeon? And, and the, he says, thine eye diffused, that was his brother Charles, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Is that how it goes? And the dungeon becomes filled with light and the chains fall off. And I arose and went forth. That's perfect theology. We were having communion once, and, and we, had, we sang that song for communion when we were in our old building. And one brother came up, and as he was receiving communion, he says, What was Wesley thinking about? <laughs> Sounds reformed. <laughs> but that's absolutely a perfect description of conversion, is the light of God shines into our dungeon of sin. And suddenly, we become new. All of these things happen simultaneously. You know, in, in, in theology, you talk about ordo salutis. And so you, you have these uh, logical order of what happens first and is debated by theologians. But as I was just listening to MacArthur talk about this, it all happens simultaneously. The, the ordo salutis is more of a logical relationship than a chronological one. Because conversion is an instantaneous thing that God does. And that, and that new creature status happens at that point of time of conversion. It's not something we aspire to. It's something God does. And this new creation is a, a person who now is totally different. Now, I remember discussing this in Bible college, this very verse. And one of my theology teachers was trying to explain um, that... You still have all your own memories, okay? And if whatever age you are, you're converted, you're the same age, you still have the same parents, you have the same genetics, you have all the same 
experiences and memories and whatever your personality traits, they're somewhat the same. You're still identified as who you are because God has each one as a unique person. But I would not use that fact to belittle how radical this newness is. In many ways, you're absolutely not the same person. I remember when I was converted in in 71, and I I had this job for three summers when I was at Iowa State studying for chemical engineering. I had a summer job after a freshman year, and then after my um, sophomore slash junior year because I was ahead of my credits, and then when I, then I got saved that summer, right in the middle of it, and then I came back the next summer after I was been in Bible college. Okay, so these guys knew me all the way through this whole process. Those guys I worked with at Midnight Shift witnessed me as a blasphemer. In fact, they saw me cursing, railing against God, and blaspheming the gospel one evening before I was converted the next afternoon. They saw it. I mean, why was I a blasphemer? Because I was so mad about Diane becoming a Christian. <laughs> I thought my fiancé had been um, destroyed by a bunch of religious nuts. And so I was like Paul, railing you know, threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, and, and the next day I come back a Christian. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't even the same person. In fact, they could see it on my face. Did I ever tell you that story? Go ahead, Robert, and I'll finish my story. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go through the Bible and look at all the scriptures that talk about the description of the natural man, you'll see a picture painted that is much different than what the world is telling us, you know, who we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for instance, you I mean, if you start with, like, Jeremiah 17:9 that says, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And, you know, who can know it? And when you realize that's the case, you, by God's grace, come to realize that, hey, I need the righteousness of Christ. That's the only thing that can get me into a right relationship with God and avail yourselves of the means of grace. Absolutely. You know, that reminds me of that message I just listened to yesterday by MacArthur. I put it on my truck and I didn't want to actually get to my destination because I didn't want to quit listening. Yeah, you ever had that happen? And so he was, he was had this message about human inability. And he was quoting that verse. He was going through all of the verses. I mean, you can't imagine the verses. He's a verse, you know how MacArthur is. Verse after verse after verse, all saying the same thing. That the lost person is, is wicked, desperately wicked, and has no inclination toward any of the things of God. All right? And he was quoting passage after passage after passage after passage to prove the doctrine of inability. In order, why was he teaching that doctrine? In order to establish that salvation is an act of God's grace. The, and, and a great sermon. If you, I think if you call MacArthur, you can get one. Um, oh, so I was going to tell the story. So here I was, the blasphemer. And then I come back the next night to go to work at Christian. And I and I, I, I got to be totally honest. I didn't know what to say. I mean, I, I it wasn't that I wasn't willing to to confess Christ. I just didn't know what to say because, and so I just kept my mouth shut. And I got on that. I was had a job sewing sacks of feed shut 
I was running a sewing machine. They'd come down on a conveyor, and I'd go run them through the sewing machine. And I did that from midnight till 8 in the morning. So I just got on that machine, and I never looked up. <laughs> and those guys were kind of looking at me, and they were all wondering what was going to happen because I was going to have this showdown, and they wanted to know what happened. So I, it, often what we would do is just work all night and then take all of our breaks at the very end of the day. And we went up to the coffee room, and we were sitting there having coffee. I said nothing. I just sat there drinking my coffee, and, and I said nothing. And so finally they, they, they said, well, what happened? And, and I said, well, about what? Well, you were going to confront your fiancé. What happened? I said, I accepted Christ. That's literally what I said. I accepted Christ. And those guys just about died. <laughs> they just sat there. And one of them, his name was Kenny. One of them said, what are you studying to be? I said, chemical engineer. He said, well, maybe you ought to be a preacher. <laughs> interesting. And the, the interesting part wasn't over yet. This was the most amazing thing. So we're, we're sitting there, and we'd have our coffee until the, the day shift guys came and started their shift. They'd come up to the coffee room to leave their lunch and you know, stuff up there. So we're sitting up there waiting for the day shift, and here comes this guy. He's always kind of a happy guy. He was a Baptist, and he worked day shift, and he's coming up the stairs, and he gets to the top, and we weren't even talking. We're just sitting there. And he, he stopped. And he says, Bob, what happened to you? You have the Lord all over your face. <laughs> and those guys go, all right, we got to get out of here. <laughs> this is getting too weird. <laughs> but it's like the darkness. You know, God just takes, takes the darkness and the scowl and the blindness and, and all those things, and he removes it, and he, and he makes you a new creature. So the other good thing about my conversion during this summer when I was working midnight shift is because all those guys witnessed that I, I, there was no way I dared backslide, you know. <laughs> I had to walk the walk. So therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a creature, a creation. And these are, uh, things are uh, true for each one here but I think it also is looking forward to some kind of eschatological idea that there we're, we're new creatures now, but there's an already not yet to that. We're looking forward to the new creation when God makes all things new and when he uh, comes and renews everything because it says the, the entire creation groans and travails unto now, okay? And waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That happens after the resurrection. And so uh, there's this idea that there's a hope in this new creation because ultimately there's going to be a perfect new creation that we all enjoy together uh, with the Lord present reigning from Jerusalem. The, the phrase in the Greek, the old things, ta archaea, ta archaea, the old world of sin and death, that Greek word is where we get our word archaic. You can, you can see it right there. Archaea. The old things, the old realm of the flesh, the old realm of sin and death, passed away. 
and that is a uh, point in time. Uh, Mike, um, do you, would you want to read a passage for us? Um, okay. <laughs> um, according to my research, the, the same Greek word, old things, is used in Isaiah 43.18 in the Septuagint. So if you could read Isaiah 43.18. And another passage that's, that uses this uh, leaf is 2 Peter 3 in verse 10. So, uh, Mike, if you could do Isaiah 43:18. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Yeah, don't yeah, read read on from there. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Yes. So don't ponder the old thing, same word in the Greek, the old things, Isaiah 43:18, and then a declaration that God is going to do a new thing, Isaiah 43:19. And I believe the new thing, people used to take that out of context. Uh, Dick, do you remember that verse in the charismatic? Yeah, yeah, every meeting. <laughs> yeah, when, when we were in the charismatic uh, movement in the 70s, that, that was one of the most favorite verses. Could somebody get that as a revelation? They'll say at the Lord, I'm going to do a new thing. And then the new thing was whatever. Yeah, well, there always had to be a new thing to keep our attention because the old one got boring in a hurry. And so we had new things coming about every so many months. But one time, even back then, finally one time I started studying that and realize, you know, I think this is about the new covenant. And the new thing came when Messiah came. And we don't have to look for some further new thing until Messiah returns. So the old things had to do with the old world of sin and death, and the new thing is new covenant, life. It's the new covenant. The old covenant has passed away. The new covenant has come. And those who are New Covenant believers have new life in the Spirit, and they are totally different people. Okay, and then the other passage we wanted to look at was 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Okay, that, that is going to be the end of the... Old creation. It's going to be passing away. Um, there's a textual I- issue. It's interesting. Um, in my uh, Lagos software, I, I have this. Oh, there's so many things in here. I don't even know what it all will do. But I've been finding other, a lot of them. And one of the screens I have that I can call up on any verse is a Bible comparison. It just pulls it up. And the way I have mine set up is, is it comes up with Textus Receptus. Westcott Hort, Nestle Aland, and then New King James, King James, New American Standard, ESV, New RSV, um, and so on. The thing that's interesting, because I, I end up getting in debates with these King James-only people, and they're saying that everything but the Textus Receptus is corrupted. So, and I say, it's not going to get past me. All right, I, I can compare every single Greek manuscript that I need to, or the major co- collections of them, I should say. And so 
I pull that up almost on every New Testament verse that I study. And you know how rare it is that there's a difference? I mean, it's very rare. But in this case, there was a difference. And I'll just show you what the most of these differences are so uh, non-consequential theologically. In this case, the Textus Receptus is different than the newer compilations of manuscripts, generally because the newer ones will use the Alexandrian manuscripts that are older, and they consider them better, although the King James people just go nuts if you tell them that. But here's the difference. The old things passed away. Behold, now the, the Texas Receptus, Receptus has all things become new, whereas the phrase all things is not in the other ones. It just says the new things have come. All right. Does that make a difference? Whatever. It's not going to change much. And if you want to add all things are new, I think it's implied anyhow. So there, so there it is. Have come is uh, genomai uh, in the perfect tense, meaning that when a person is a new creature in Christ, the new things that have come continue to be in that condition. It's, it starts at a point in time and it continues to be true. That's what perfect means. <clears throat> so you, you continue to be a new creature. You know, this also, I think, speaks of the perseverance of the believers. God doesn't make someone a new creature temporarily. You, you see what I mean? You don't become a new creature, and then two weeks later you go back to being an old one. Uh, once you're created new, you're created new. And that's the condition you stay in, and that's exactly what this would uh, imply from the Greek. Okay, let's look up some more verses, and I have a couple of citations. Uh, Karin, there's actually, yeah, Karin, if you could look up Ezekiel 18.31, and then Alice, if you could look up Ezekiel 36.26, and according to my notations, we want to compare those two, okay? For Karin, uh, Ezekiel 18.31, and Alice, Ezekiel 36.26, okay? Troy, do you want to do one as well? Um, John 15, 2 and 5, verse 2 and verse 5. And then Robert, um, Romans 6, 4 through 6, and Mandy, okay? Ephesians 2, 10. Oh, and I got one other, too. Um, if you could look up, what's your name? <laughs> Siri? Could you look up uh, Isaiah 48, 6? Okay, now let's do Ezekiel 18:31. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Okay, now there's a reason I had you quote that. That's, a, there's a theological point there. There's a command to Israel to make themselves a new heart. Is that what it said? Finney quotes that verse. In fact, he has a whole sermon on it. And Charles Finney says that verse proves that everybody's perfectly capable of making themselves a new heart without any help from God. Because Finney's one principle that, that, that he uses to interpret every single passage is that God will never command us to do anything we don't already have the ability to do. Okay? So therefore, if God commands us to make ourselves a new heart, we have the ability to make ourselves a new heart. But before we decide Finney's right, let's read Ezekiel 36:26 and see if we can't make sense of this. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. All right. Now, let's think about this. Let's do a little theology. Is it okay to do that in church? Okay. Let's do a little theology. Why would God in Ezekiel 18.31 command you to make your own new heart and then later in Ezekiel 36.26 say that God is going to do it? All right? We have an answer over here. (laughs) Back to uh, Scott. To help us understand we can't do it. (laughs) Okay. I would say to show us our need. Um. God all the time commands us to do things that we can't do unless he does some work of grace. Yes, uh, Bill. You don't happen to know the Greek word of the word make, do you? In which one? Make, you know, make you a new heart. Yeah, well, that would be in Hebrew in Ezekiel, so I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. Okay, so, uh, so <clears throat> if a building, is, uh, a building could be uh, you know, constructed of various materials, and I'm just curious as to what the Greek word would be for make. Because if God's saying to make you a new heart, well, then he'd also give you the ingredients, wouldn't he? He'd also give you the materials in which to make it. Well, I, as I understand it, okay, here's what I think. The commands of God don't imply that we're cap- perfectly capable. Because, for example, it doesn't even imply that he thinks we're going to do it. Uh, a very interesting section like that are the blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy 28. Okay? Um, because Moses says, here are these blessings, and if you will do these things, then you will be blessed. And if you don't do these things, and then you will be cursed. So here's the blessings and here's the curses. And remember when they went into the promised land, they had to go up on those two mountains, and then they read those, and then they'd say, Amen. Okay, so they were agreeing with what God said before they went in. But if you continue to read Deuteronomy, when you get into Moses' sermon toward the end, he says, now, when you get in the land and all these curses come upon you, (laughs) then you should remember, okay, and then he has this song that they're supposed to sing, and the song is about how rebellious they are. Okay, their, their national anthem is about them being sinners. That's just fascinating. So Moses already said they were going to come under the curse. And and in Galatians 3, Paul uses the same reasoning. In Galatians 3, Paul cites the Old Testament where it says, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide in all of the things in the book of the law. So Paul's conclusion is, therefore, everyone who's under works of the law is cursed. So Paul is using the premise that nobody was able to perfectly obey the law. Now, if it's true that Adam's descendants are unable to perfectly obey God's law, then why does God give his law, knowing they can't obey it? Well, let me give you a couple of answers. One, number one, God is a perfectly holy God. He can't command anything less than what's in keeping with his own moral nature. All right? So God can't command error just because humans are prone to it. God can only speak the truth. God cannot lie. God cannot command man to do evil. He, he only is going to command good. So he says, be ye perfect, be holy, and obey my law. But 
the presumption that they're going to fail is everywhere built into the law. That's why if, they, if he didn't know they were going to fail, why did he institute the Day of Atonement? All right? And on the Day of Atonement, they had to come and admit they were sinners. They had to bring the lamb, and they had to say that they were sinners. And God would give them, and they had to have a day of afflicting their souls, and which the rabbis interpreted as fasting. So there was only one required fast in the entire calendar year for the Jews, and that was the Day of Atonement. That's how they afflicted their souls. And, they, and then they brought in the sacrifice. The high priest went in with the sacrifice for the sins. So, back to our verse. God says, make yourself a new heart. I believe that that's the law showing us our need for the gospel. And then the gospel promise in Ezekiel 36:26 is I will give you a new heart. So when we preach the law and the gospel, the, the preaching of the law part isn't suggesting that if somebody would just finally quit doing these sins altogether and make themselves sinless, then God would accept them. No, that's not why we preach the law. We preach the law so that people know that they're unacceptable to God in their present condition. So if God says, make yourself a new heart, and you, and you go, Lord, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless. Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, I, I'm going to fail. God, I know I'm going to fail you. Help me. Cry out to God. And God gives us a new heart, a new covenant promise. That's how I understand it. Not that there's an implication of human ability every time there's a command. Yes. Was uh, Jeremiah 20 or 13:23 was that one of the verses we're going to read? Go ahead. Uh, Jeremiah 13:23 says, "Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil." That's a good point. Well, what, what was that verse? Jeremiah 13, verse 23. MacArthur was preaching on that verse. That's pretty good when you thought of the thing verse MacArthur did. It's <laughs> coincidence. That's pretty good, Robert. That's an astute reading. So this is, is something that we have to understand. So when we preach the law, the Ten Commandments, and uh, when our street evangelists go out and preach the law and the gospel... The point is so that we see our need. Because the good news is that God is going to give us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. God is going to create a new creature. And the thing that's keeping that from being true is our own stubbornness to think that we don't need it. Uh, I'm, I'm just fine the way I am. I don't need God to do anything for me. That is what keeps us on the road to hell. Okay, um, so Ezekiel 18:31, 36, 26, John 15:2 and 5. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And then verse 5: I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you cannot. You can do nothing. Yes. So there again is human inability. Human inability. If you're, if you're struggling with that doctrine of inability, I, and I don't know who you might be, 
But I know when, when people come here from wherever they've been going to church, most of them are accustomed to hearing sermons that are based on the implication of human ability. Okay, because all of the seeker-sensitive, the self-help, the, the type of thing you would see on a lot of the TV shows, like um, who's that guy that fills his... Uh, Osteen. Yeah, that, all of that teaching has as a premise human ability. That if you just give people the right tools, they can solve their problems in life and have a better life. Okay? So I, I understand that sometimes it's difficult. And MacArthur was talking about this. Sometimes when you've come from that perspective, and that's what you've always been hearing, when you come and you hear sermons preached from the perspective of human inability and the need for grace and the gospel understood from the perspective of grace alone, sometimes it's, it's kind of hard. Wait a second. This doesn't seem right to me. And those two sermons I've been listening to by MacArthur, he's actually very much talking to that. I don't know who his audience was, but he was saying, I know you probably have a hard time with this. But then he just goes through Scripture, 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 including the one Robert just quoted. And he said, we might as well understand that we're really that sinful. And we're really that wretched. And then see the glory of God's grace in salvation because how that will, uh, once you see that, then the Bible comes alive. You can totally understand the Bible. Yes? I don't know. I'm not good at this, but I don't know whether I can get this point across, but uh, I've been doing a study on providence. And um, when... I look at the early settlers of this country, you know, and, and uh, how this all comes into place and, and uh, how it relates to what's going on in the church today is almost exactly what you're talking about. And it's about the understanding of grace. What they all had in common, even though they came here for different reasons, was grace and uh, uh, the Word of God. Yeah. They understood the Word of God and they understood it to a point where... Um, they were willing to su- suffer death, persecution. I mean, to what we can't even imagine, uh, what they went through to their families, uh, um, to their way of living. Well, there had been wars before that for but years. They all over had these that issues. in common. They all had that in common. But at the same time, there was a division amongst the uh, the people, even to the point where they were under attack at, at Boston. And they, they, they wanted to pray, but nobody wanted to let the other guy pray because they, maybe one was a Congregationalist, one was a, a Puritan, one was a, you know. And, and, and finally Samuel Adams stood up and he said, you know, we have to pray. We have to have divine guidance, you know. And then each man was allowed to pray in his own way. But the difference in what we have today is today we have many faiths in this country where we're not in accordance with the same God. Yeah, we can't even agree on who God is. Yeah. No, yeah. All right. Um, where were we at? Oh, Robert, you had Romans 6, 4 through 6? 4 through 6. Romans 6, 4 through 6. Okay. There it is. Thank you, Reverend. Romans 6, 4 through 6. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, 
so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Okay, so there's ethical uh, uh, guidance, there's moral guidance that comes to, based on the fact that we're new creatures. So Paul's saying, because you died, remember, one, one died for all, therefore all died, and they who died should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And if you're in Christ, we know no one after the flesh, but we're in Christ, we're new creatures. So Paul's point is, here, because you died and were raised with him, then live like new creatures. In other words, live life according to God's will. This isn't just a legal change. It's also a practical change. It's, yeah, our legal status changes from just, not justified to justified, from unholy to holy. But we're also empowered to live in a way that would be pleasing to the Lord. That's the point. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, so after it talks about salvation by grace through faith, it says we're created to do good works. So there's this creation language again, like we see in our verse 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're a new creation. The new creation is objectively different than the old one. And I would go so far as to say, uh, we, you know, we're going to talk about this when we look at the logical implications. I think there's an impli- implied uh, biconditional here, but we'll talk about that next week when we get our logic, so you all have the papers if you, if you download them. But I think that even though the way it's stated here is just an if-then, I believe that according to Paul's definitions, especially when you look at verse 18, all these things are from God, it's, it's actually... Both and so therefore, there is an implication that if we're not new creatures, we have reason to wonder if we've actually been converted. But we'll talk about that next week. Uh, um, Isaiah forty-eight six was that it? Forty-eight. Yeah. Okay. That's it. That it? Yeah. Let's, let's do it. You've heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit to them? That doesn't sound like the one we wanted, does it? That's a good verse, though. <laughs> that, every once in a while that happens, I write it down. Uh, Robert, could you get the mic for Patricia? I just happened to pull out this quote. I had it in my file here while I'm writing notes, and it's just apposite for what we're doing today. God is not out merely to change or even to convert old beings. This is not like a new paint job or a remodeling job. Faith in Christ is a death. God is out to put the old being out of its misery once and for all. (laughs) Faith is not like choosing a new coat or even a new set of values. It is being chosen. Being chosen for the old Adam and Eve is a dying because it means that God takes charge. But it is not just a death. It is also the hope of resurrection, of being grasped by a new life of love, hope, and care. Good, good quote. We, we got to put the old man out of his misery once and for all. <laughs> That's, I like that. Um, 
Today, we are, as Communion Sunday, so be contemplating just the glories of what God has done for you in Christ and in preparation for that. And help with the chairs, and we'll see you upstairs at 1030.